0: Lord, this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your, height, your sight, my rock and my Redeemer. Amen. Okay, good morning. I think winter has its last grip on us. It's like that last dying thing. Uh, I actually snowed yesterday morning. I couldn't believe it. Uh, And then we have a daughter living in North Carolina where she's sending us pictures of flowers and everything blooming and looking beautiful. Um, We are continuing the story, the one true story, the story, God's story. We'll, you know, as as I've told you, if you've been here, we're going through the five parts of his story in detail for the five weeks leading up to Easter on Easter Sunday. I'm going to bring it all together and tell the whole story. If… You have a friend, somebody you think has any curiosity, somebody that you have prayed for or are praying for that you would just love to hear the story of God. There, in my opinion, there's nothing better for somebody to hear. I just was listening again to a podcast. We are storied people. We live in an age when people, the main way we are formed is through story. That's just human nature, and we have the greatest story to tell. And these guys in the podcast were saying our culture, Western culture, desperately needs a new story because the story that we're told growing up is uh, petering out. It's not showing itself to work well, so. Um, we have the postcards back there. Alicia's back there. If, you know, if you want to give one of these to somebody, invite them for Easter, invite them next week, just anytime, that would be great. Um, still want to remind you and encourage you i'm hearing more people are watching tangled uh watch this movie before easter there is a there is a payoff there will be a very big payoff so um so we are doing the story of god god's story um again i mean it in the sense it's not a myth or a fable i mean it in the sense if god were to sit and have coffee with us and told us his story so quick summary uh When we started, by the way, we do have two other things. I forgot one of these last week for service. We do have a paper in your bulletin. If you want to follow along drawing these, we've done the first two weeks. We're going to be down here in the lower right-hand corner today. Also, if you're a reader, some of you are readers, and if you're wanting to read more about this whole narrative of God and what He's doing to restore, bring about the restoration of His creation, I really recommend this book, Creation Regained. We have some copies back there that you can pick up after the service. So, so we started up in the, this upper quadrant. You know, actually, we started with how we see the beauty in our world and in, in humans, but we also see brokenness, and we're asking the question, where did this brokenness come from? And so, we had to go back. And so, we started with the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates the world, He creates human beings as the pinnacle of His creation, the crowning moment to reign and rule over it, to care for it, and He creates them to live an intimate relationship with Him, living um, in intimacy with Him but under His loving reign, and that world was full of His goodness, if you remember. It was good, He says six times, and then upon the completion of creation, He says it was very good, and we know… The description of it, that it was a place full of the shalom of God. Everything was exactly it was intended to be. Then last week, we came back over here and asked, where did the broken world came from? And we talked about the fact that it has been broken by sin. That the man and woman reject relationship with God, reject His rule over His life, essentially said, we want you out of here. We're going to run this world by ourselves. And in doing that, Uh, not only broke the relationship with him, but if you remember, that's the key relationship. And in losing that relationship, the relationship between the man and woman immediately broke. They're arguing. They became broken internally. And the whole of creation became broken. So we live in a broken world right now. And when we incur disease or sickness or things like that, it's not your fault it's not God's fault. We live in a broken world. That that is the world that we live in, and it's a world that Jordan referred to, where when they rejected God, they became self-focused. Everything about became about them, and that's the kind of world we live in. is a very self-focused world. So I ended last week with the big question: What's God going to do with this world, and what's He going to do with all of this death and this ruin that God brought into the world? Is He going to ignore it? Is He going to walk it away? Is He going to tear it up and start over again, like I used to do with my Legos when my brother would ruin my creations? I talked about that. And what's God going to do with him, them? What's God going to do with us? They, and remember their story is our story, we, I, turned my back on Him and I walked away from Him. So is He going to do the same? And how can God destroy evil and suffering? If it is embedded in me, how can he destroy evil and suffering without destroying me? How can he do that? So to answer, I need to turn to key, five key New Testament passages that we referenced back in January. Uh, and here they are. And this thing, by the way... I'm, I'm working on keeping up with it. This, these are going to be posted on my blog. I think the church emailed this out, so if you're like wanting notes and some of this, like if this is too fast to write, this will be up on my blog this week. But if you remember, we read these passages in January. I'm not going to read them right now, but in Colossians 1, 19 to 20, we are told that God's intent in Jesus is to reconcile. Do you remember we did this together? How many things? All things to himself. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said that when He returned, He would renew how many things? All things. Then in Acts 3, 21, Peter called, said that when Jesus came, at that time, when He returns, at that time, He will restore what? Everything. Not some things, but everything. In Ephesians 1:10, it says that God through, is going to bring how many things under one head, Jesus being the head? How many things? All things. And in Revelation 21, 5, where... Jesus says, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. I didn't even mention 1 Corinthians 15. Here's, it, here's what it is. Um, I can say it, that God's overarching purpose is nothing less than the restoration of the totality of His creation back to its original design. His mission is nothing less than then the restoration of the totality of His creation back to its original design to bring all things back under His loving reign. That is His mission. That's His mission. Rescuing us, His image bearers, but also the entirety of creation from corruption, decay, and death. The things, the ruin that was brought into that creation by human sin. His goal is, is not to abandon creation, but he's going to remake it. So God embarks on the great restoration movement, this great restoration to reconcile, renew, and restore all things. Now, how's God going to go about this? Uh, It's one of Tim Wright's favorite scriptures. I love this scripture. Here's what Isaiah says. The Lord looked, and he could not find any justice, He couldn't believe what he saw. There was no one around to correct this awful situation. He could not find anyone to help the people, so he did it himself. He took on the work of salvation. He looked and he saw, so over here in this lower right, he saw this mess. And there was no one to fix it. It's actually interesting. In the Hebrew, it actually says God like, it's almost like God rolled up his sleeves to come and do it. So amazingly, unexpectedly, counterintuitively, God, who was, who was kind of kicked out of this, right? God comes into this broken world. C.S. Lewis says this, I love this, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, in a great campaign of sabotage. God has landed on this enemy-occupied territory in human form. Philip Yancey, a daring raid by the ruler of the forces of good into the universe's seat of evil. What well, I want you to see, this is our Father's world, and He plans to reoccupy it. He intends to evict evil and sin and injustice from this creation. Why Him? Why is it so important for God to be the one to fix this? Two things. As Isaiah says, because of our sin and brokenness, we can't fix it. And trust me, we've tried. It's been the whole human project. We've tried. We can't. But there's another reason. And I think we all know this deeply in our human humanity. That because, because in issues of love, you never send somebody for you, you go yourself. Is that not right? You go yourself in issues of deep love. And so he enters. So despite our rejection of him, God has not abandoned us. Rather, he went on a search and rescue mission to find us. And he did this through Jesus, whose name means, I just absolutely love this, God to the rescue. God to the rescue. Jesus, the great Emmanuel, which means God with us, the Son of God, which is a Jewish idiom that means the embodiment of God, the embodiment of God. So rather than being detached and standing outside of this, unscathed, God enters fully into this mess, this pain, this brokenness, enters fully into it. And so Jesus comes, and His message, I mean, we talked about it a month ago, two months ago, man, time's flying. His message was the good news of the kingdom of God. He came announcing um, that he was the kingdom bringer. In Mark 1.14, his first public message, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew 12.28, the kingdom of God has now arrived among you. In Jesus we have the return of the king. Remember last week we talked about Steve Jobs getting evicted out of the company he created and how it almost became destroyed, right? And then when the king comes back, Steve the king, right, everything flourishes again, right? It's, it's, it's like that story again, but much better. And I want to tell you, everywhere Jesus walks, everywhere he walks, darkness flees, Wherever he goes, he brings love, life, liberation, restoring the shalom of God in everything he touches. And I want to tell you, to many people in his day, especially the religious leaders, he was turning life upside down. But the reality is, he was turning the world right side up. That's what he was doing. Remember those four relationships we talked about? Can you guys remember what are the four crucial relationships? Brian has one on his lips, I think. Oh, pressure. Huh? Social, the relationship between people. Tim? Yeah, that's spiritual. Tim always gets that one. That relationship with God. The key, the central one, right? What else? Yeah, the natural, my relationship as a human to creation, to the world. And then, huh? Yeah, myself, that emotional, my relationship with myself. And I want you to see that in all four of those areas, he brings spiritual order, he brings shalom into all four of those areas. He brings spiritual order, he restores spiritual shalom of, of between individuals. Um, well, not just individuals, but with God, restoring lost people back into relationship with the Father. In Mark, 4, in Mark chapter 2, A a paralyzed man is brought to him, and Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. He tells Nicodemus, a religious leader, talks to him about his need to be born again so he can enter into the kingdom of God. He not only brings spiritual order everywhere he goes, he brings social order. He restores social shalom between individuals, healing broken relationships, confronting injustice. He accepts the marginalized and outcast, showing the way of love. Though he was fearless in speaking truth and pointing out injustice, absolutely fearless, yet he treated everyone with love and dignity and he embraced everyone excepting Jews and non-Jews, rich, poor, men, women, children, adults, the young, the old, the powerful, the weak, the religious, the irreligious. He doesn't discriminate. And he brings emotional order, restores that psychological shalom to individuals, restores broken emotions. We see it in the way that he would rename a person, changing their self identity into what their created identity was to be. The way he spoke to people's deep seated shame by the way he touched untouchables. Or that woman who had had the bleeding for 12 years, who had lived for 12 years in utter shame, how when he approaches her, he looks her in the eye and he says, daughter. And he restores the broken physical order, restores the natural shalom of the world, calming storms, multiplying bread, filling empty stomachs, healing diseases, creating wine for the, the Presbyterians only, right? Right? For the Baptists, it was well scraped juice, but um, <laughs> healing, congenital, blindness, paralysis, muteness, deafness, raising people from the dead. Matt Chandler says when Jesus heals the sick and the lame, he's saying that the gospel is about the eradication of physical brokenness. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, he's saying that the gospel is about Abundant provision through Christ to a world of hunger. When Jesus calms the storm, he is saying that the gospel is about his lordship over the chaos of fallen creation. I wish I could tell you the story of the woman with the bleeding and then of Jairus, the religious leader, and his daughter, that shows all four of these areas how he brings restoration, but I don't have time. The miracles of healing, deliverance, provision resurrecting people from the dead all reveal that Jesus is making all things new he's restoring everything that was once broken and everything he does he is showing what life looks like when it's lived under God's rule when you look at Jesus this is what life looks like when God's back in charge I I love his story but it gets better and more breathtaking, yet tragic. Every story has a turning point, right? The crucial moment when the story changes, and if it's a great story, totally unexpectedly, it changes. Totally caught off guard, the unexpected happens, like Vader suddenly. Picking up the emperor and giving his life for his son, right? Grand Torino, the unexpected moment that you don't see coming. And so it is in God's story. The unexpected happens. He's got a crown now, but instead of this crown... Crown of Thorns. I have heard that when they show the Jesus film among people groups that have never heard the story of Jesus, that when it comes to the moment of the cross and the story turns, that people gasp in shock at what is happening. We see Jesus with firm resolve stride into Jerusalem, the place that he knows within a week he will be betrayed. Abandoned, arrested, beaten, severely scourged, nailed on a cross, executed. And not just any execution, the most horrific form of execution ever devised. Much to our surprise, God comes into the broken world and He takes suffering and evil upon Himself. Wow. That is amazing. So what's going on on the cross? Three things that Jesus was doing on the cross. First, He was offering Himself in death as a sin offering to pay for the sins of humanity, for all sins, for your sins, for my sins. Romans 6.23 says that the penalty that sin pays is death. 1 Peter 2.24, He personally carried our sins in His body on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was without sin, but for our sake, he became a sin offering so that through him, we might be made right with God. Romans 5.8-9, it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. By his death, we are made right with God. And it wasn't just my sin. It was the collective sin of all of humanity that he was bearing on that cross. Isaiah 53 says that he was wounded for the wrong things we did, that we did. He was crushed for the evil things, again, that we did. The punishment which made us well was given to him, and we are healed by his wounds. He had to do this, he had to take the price for our sin. Do you remember last week? All the brokenness and suffering that we see in the world is merely a symptom of a much greater root problem. And that root problem is, do you remember? It's sin, it's me, and it's my sin. Until that root cause, that sin is taken care of, the brokenness of the world cannot be taken care of. Sin, all sin, our sin, my sin, that's the problem that has to be dealt with first. And I had said, the world can't be put right till we are put right. This was central. That's not all that was happening on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was also fully entering into the human condition in order to share in our suffering. And in so doing, he experienced evil and brokenness and suffering in all four areas, the same as we. He experienced evil, brokenness, and suffering physically physically. I mean, we could walk through his whole life. He grew up a peasant in a backwater of the Roman Empire. He knew the pains of hunger, okay? That's just one example. But I want to focus on this event. He went through the excruciating pain of being beaten, scourged, and hung on a cross. Excruciating. I purposely use that word because it comes from a Latin word created specifically to express the inexpressible pain of execution upon a cross. The word excruciate comes from Latin, ex. Out of or from crux, the cross. It means to torment somebody physically with intense pain and inflict anguish upon them, to torture. It was the worst form of execution ever devised by human beings. And in the end, on this cross, he experienced the thing people fear most death. He experienced evil, brokenness, and suffering emotionally. He experienced all the, the normal emotional pain that we all go through in a broken world. I mean, he lost his father as a young man. But again, I want to focus here. In those last days in the garden, in the trial before the Jewish leaders, in that trial before the Roman governor, on the cross, he went through excruciating emotional pain. Because excruciate, interestingly in the definition, also says this, that it is to torment someone mentally mentally by inflicting intense mental pain and anguish to subject a person to intense mental distress. And a significant part of that emotional pain was Him, Romans, I mean, Hebrews twelve two says that on the cross, He also felt the shame that they had brought in the world. Imagine in that world where you lived your whole life totally covered, being hung on a cross, on a hill, publicly, on the main road, coming into the city, totally naked. Can you imagine the shame of that? That was part of the point of crucifixion. But he also experienced evil and brokenness and suffering socially. He experienced the full extent of human, social, relational evil, both interpersonal evil, like one person to him, as well as societal evil. Interpersonally, he was betrayed by someone in his inner circle, abandoned by his dearest friends. That's societal, corporate, human evil. Man, I want to tell you, they focused their sights on him, bent on his destruction. He was hated by the institutional religious establishment, hated by the government, shamed, beaten, spat upon, lied about, mocked, rejected. He experienced an act of horrible and brutal injustice. And he experienced suffering spiritually. I want to kind of focus on this one. Spiritually in His intimate and eternally loving bond with the Father. While on the cross, He experienced the greatest sense of alienation in cosmic history. Right? He had always lived in the deepest communion with the Father. And for the first time in eternity, He experienced the estrangement from the Father. Now think about it. I mean, some of us know this deeply, the most painful of suffering that any human can experience is not physical, but relational, right? Specifically being abandoned by one whom you have had the most intimate of relationships, there's no greater pain. And we're told that on the cross, the Father turned from the Son as He took my sin and my spiritual alienation from God. And of the whole human race upon himself. And as the father, when he was burying all of that sin and alienation and the father has to turn his back, he cries out, "My God!" My God, me! Why have you forsaken me? God, the Son who had lived eternally in the most intimate relationships with God the Father was having that relationship stripped from him in that moment. Christian Wiseman said that in that moment, he felt human destitution to its absolute degree. Matt Chandler, this is a long quote. Can you hang with me? Okay. Jesus experienced not only pain, but hell on the cross. What Jesus did for us. His body was being destroyed in the worst possible way. But that was minuscule compared to what was happening to his soul. When he cried out that his God had forsaken him, he was experiencing hell itself. If a mild acquaintance denounces you or rejects you, it hurts. If a good friend does the same, the hurt is far worse. However, if your spouse walks out on you saying, I never want to see you again, that is far more devastating still. The longer, deeper, more intimate the relationship, the more tortuous is any separation. The son's relationship with the father was without beginning and infinitely infinitely greater than the most intimate and passionate human relationship. When Jesus was cut off from God, he went into the deepest pit and the most powerful furnace of suffering, one beyond all imagining. And he did it voluntarily. He did it for us. In other words, hell is what God was willing to endure in order to save me. God Himself was wounded in the very essence of His being for my sin. He took my sin and the total consequences of all of it onto Himself in order to overcome it and defeat it by His love. And I want you to see that Jesus fully entered into the human condition to share in our suffering. That is why Hebrews says this, since we have flesh and blood, He too shared in our humanity. For this reason, he had to be made like us in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, a few years back, my father died. Scott, your father was pretty close, right? Right? talk to Jesus about that. His response, I lost my dad too. I know exactly how that feels. I understand. I empathize. Come close to me for strength and grace. Family rejection, betrayal by a friend, misunderstood, he knows and he understands. Poor, marginalized, he totally gets it. It is common that when humans experience evil and suffering, that we cry out to God, Why? Why me? Why have you forsaken me? And Jesus says back to us, I have been there, and I have done that. He voluntarily chose to enter into our world of pain and suffering, to fully identify with us, to experience the same pain and suffering we experience. Do you remember last week we read a verse from Romans that says that the creation is going through uh, pain and brokenness right now? And I want you to know the pain of the universe was taken into the very heart of God. Last week, I went and saw Dick Watson with some people, and he was just sharing because the last few years for her were very painful and agonizing, and he said he prayed recently and he said, Lord, why does Joey have to go through hell to get to heaven. He said he felt the Lord answer back to him. My son did that. He went through hell to get back to heaven. I have studied and I've known people from religions all over the world, and I want to tell you there is no religion that has a God that does this. William Barclay says the fact of Jesus coming is the final and unanswerable, unanswerable proof that God cares. And then finally, Jesus in his, in, on the cross, in his death and resurrection, he was taking upon himself evil in order to defeat it. 1 John 3:8 says, The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. In Luke 22.53, just before he was arrested, Jesus said. To his followers, this is the hour when the power of darkness reigns. And I want to tell you, the spiritual powers of darkness that ruled this world, they were bent on his destruction. And out on the cross, he was taking upon himself the evil and the darkness that they would put upon him to the fullest extent possible. How many of you young guys, would grow, when growing up as a kid, would, if there was an ant hill around, you'd like get a magnifying glass and fry little un- innocent unspecting ants? Just three? Okay. Come on, guys. This, this is part of the brokenness of the world is not fessing up. Uh, I have no idea what that's like. I've never done that kind of thing, but I saw the boys in the neighborhood do this. Okay. Here's what I want you to see, that, like a magnifying glass focusing the sun rays onto one small focal point, all forms of evil zeroed in on Jesus in a way they had never done it before on any human being, bent on destroying him. They directed their full firepower upon him, full arsenal. The full brunt of evil came on him in full force. Man, the cross, this was the ultimate showdown between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Jesus, in a sense, was like drawing all evil into one place, allowing it to do its very worst. And I'm telling you, it did its worst to him on that cross. He took Satan's best shot. But interestingly, in a sense, it like spent itself on him. Does that make sense? He took best shot in what appeared to be a victory, all the powers of darkness, both spiritual and human, landed what they thought was the death blow. And he was struck down. Wow. C.S. Lewis, as he says, "It cost God nothing, so far as we know, to create." But to win creation back cost him everything. cost him everything. But I have good news. Gene's here. This is the word for the week. It was a Pyrrhic victory. That's where in winning, you lose. Because Jesus rose from the dead triumphantly three days later. And I want you to know in so doing, he brought the final defeat of evil. He took that full force of evil on himself. He exhausted it and he conquered it in the ultimate kind of way. And in that moment at the resurrection, the powers that rule the earth were overthrown. Jesus in the resurrection was victorious over evil and sin, and he triumphed over Satan and the powers of darkness. And more important than that, in his resurrection, he triumphed over death, death being the most lethal weapon that Satan yields. That's why Hebrews 2.14 says, only as a human being could he die. He had to become human. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil. Who had the power of death? And then in Revelation 1, 18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I now hold the keys of death and the grave. Jesus is that promised serpent crusher from Genesis three fifteen. Can we hear it for Jesus? I mean, really, can we like hear it? Jesus can Baptists do that like can we celebrate that (laughs) worship team why don't you guys I don't know where they are but come on up wherever you are do you remember last week that I said that the man and woman's decision to rebel against God it sent ripples through the entire cosmos But I want you to know that in his death and his resurrection, a shockwave went through the entire cosmos. Like when, forgive me for the reference, when Sauron's defeated, that shockwave, you know, just, it goes through everything. Do you know what all this means, really? Really? especially His resurrection, evil won't have the final say. God and goodness will win and be triumphant in the end. By His sacrificial death and His resurrection, Jesus has conquered the power of evil. One of foreigners' greatest hits, you know, when I was young, was, I want to know what love is. Well, here it is. Here's the answer to their question. So, rescued by God. That's this part of the story. In the cross, Christ was first and foremost, it was His means of reconciling sinful people to Himself. But I want to finish with a really important thing. I dare not leave this out. It is more than just reconciling me and you to Himself. I want you to know that through Jesus, God is reclaiming not only us, He's reclaiming the whole of creation. His work is epic. His work is epic. Anthony Hokma says that the work of Christ is not just to save individuals, not even to save an innumerable throng of blood-bought people. The total work of Christ is nothing less than to redeem this entire creation from the effects of sin. Something cosmic was happening here. That's why in Matthew, when, he, when he's dying, the, the earth quakes and it turns dark and the veil rips and the dead rise. Something huge was happening here to all of creation. This story is earth shaking. And I want you to remember, God is not just remaking some things. He's remaking What? all things it is i love this it is the great palingenesis when jesus said when jesus said that when he returned it would be the renewal of all things it is that greek word palingenesia palingenesis do you see a word in that greek word that you know any any word in there that if you know the bible you're like hey i recognize a word in that word Genesis, it's because Jesus is restoring on the cross the Genesis vision that God had the beginning, and we're going to see this more clearly in two weeks. I showed you two months ago this video, and I want to show you again. Whoever wrote The Passion of the Christ, he had it right, that it's about the restoration of all things. Who, who would have seen a man hanging on the cross? That in that act is the remaking of all things. In his death and resurrection, he was spearheading the renewal of earth. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God is bringing about the restoration, the entire cosmos, back to its original design. God has been beginning to reweave the very fabric of the universe that had unraveled at the fall and I want you to see if you're doing the diagram. We're halfway through. Five parts to the story. This is the center of the story. This is the tipping point. It all hangs here. The life and death and resurrection, and I would add the ascension of Jesus, is the epicenter of God's work in the world and the epicenter of his story. So, brings me to an obvious conclusion. Question. Obvious question. Some of my dear friends are even asking these days, if He's restoring all things, then why is there still pain and suffering? Why does evil still exist? Why is there still disease, still death? Was it not enough? we got to come back next week. Can we stand, and celebrate together, the death and especially the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. Hallelujah, right? Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've conquered death and sin and evil and Satan. And that you rose again and you are our living Lord. You are the serpent crusher the one in whom I put my hope we want to be your kind of people so may this week everywhere our foot touches may darkness flee and may where we tread be places that we bring life and love and liberation and we pray in your name amen let us go people be people who spread the love life and liberation of Jesus everywhere we go.